Well, since it's Memorial Day weekend, I thought it would be appropriate to point out to you that we are surrounded by dead people. Seriously, on either side of the, cemetery, uh, the sanctuary, as you know, you find cemeteries. People who were once in here in these pews are now out there. People who were baptized as children in this building and eulogized as old people when they died and went on to be with the Lord. So Memorial Day draws us at the same time to look to the past and to the future. We look back at the lives of the past. And as we look at those lives, we are pointed to the future, toward our future. Because in case you didn't know this, life on this earth is not forever. And so you and I should let the lives of the the saints of the past teach us right now in this present moment. Teach us that all of our lives, no matter what our age, are limited commodities. And their life should inspire us for the future as well. To live all the days that we have left, no matter how many they may be, for Christ. And I think that's the essence of Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. That race, our race, is to live for Christ and to strive to be like him more and more. As his disciples, as his followers, we should strive to live lives that imitate the life of Christ. So toward that end this morning, with the hope that that will be our goal, let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, you're going to find that on page 981. Page 981 in the pew Bible, Philippians chapter 2. And When you found your place, let's stand together as we hear read. The Word of the Living God. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. This is the Word of the Lord. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will genuinely, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have, all, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. 
I am the more eager to send him. Therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, bless us, we pray now as we come to your word. Thank you, Spirit of God, for your presence. Give us minds to understand and embrace your truth. Or give us hearts that desire to be more and more the people that you have called us to be. That's our prayer as we come now to your word and as we ask your blessing on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So in the passage we've read just now, we encounter three different men, faithful witnesses from the past. All of them different, with different ministries, different gifts, but all of them loved Christ. And as we look at the lives of these men, certain features begin to emerge in each of them. Features that we should see if we are faithful followers of Christ in our own life. Whenever we look at our spiritual selves, these are features that we should see reflected. Now ultimately, Christ is our model. But Christ is a model of sinless perfection. All of his spiritual features, perfect and without flaw. On this side of heaven, that is never going to be a reality for us. And so the features we see this morning in the lives of these men should encourage us because they're people, just like you and I are people. They had sin operating in their lives, just as you and I have sin operating in our lives. And yet, or in spite of that, their goal was to serve Christ and to be like Him. So let's look at some of those features together this morning. And let's begin with the Apostle Paul. Look in verse 17. Paul writes, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. So here's the feature of Paul's life. It's poured out. Paul sees his life as something to be given away to be sacrificed. Paul realizes that life on earth is indeed a limited commodity. It's the dash on the tombstone between the year you were born and the year you die. That's all there is to your life and to mine. And whatever that very certain amount is, it must be poured out. The Greek word for poured out is spindo. How great is that? God has given us a word that we can understand, spindo, spin. And so we think, oh, Lord, my life, oh yeah, that's something to spindo. The question is, how do you spend your life? On what do you spend it? See, our financial budgets tell the story of our lives in a big way. We look at where our money goes, and it's not difficult to determine what the priorities are in our lives. And so if you were to budget the days of your life instead of the dollars in your bank, what story would it tell about your life 
each day, day by day. Where are your priorities? How did you spend it? Did you spend that day at all? Or in some way were you trying to protect it and to save it up? See, the tense of this word, spendo, poured out, it's, it's present, and that indicates ongoing action. This, this spending is to be taking place right now. Listen, the spending is not something that we put off until a later date, until we graduate, until this, until that. No, the spending is to be taking place right now, and it doesn't necessarily require some dramatic event in our lives. For Paul, it wasn't only when the Romans executed him for preaching the gospel that he poured out his life. He poured it out every step along the way. It wasn't only when he was chained between two Roman guards that his life was poured out. It wasn't only when he was being beaten or stoned or going hungry or freezing cold for the sake of the gospel. He was pouring out his life when he was in that booth sewing tents and selling them to people. As people came by and visited his booth and bought his tents, he talked to them about the Lord Jesus Christ. He was spending his life in that moment. He's spending his life while he's writing this letter to the Philippians to encourage them and instruct them in the gospel so that they might have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Paul is pouring out his life in all of these things. Pouring out your life means spending your life for others in some way that will point them to Christ. Pouring out your life is spending your life in some way for others that in some way will point them to Christ. The lives that we have, that God gives to us, they're not for us to, to, to dam up. We're to pour them out. We are to spend our lives, not save our lives. You know, we do the spending, and we leave the saving to God. And listen, a poured out life is a good life. A poured out life, a life of sacrifice is a good life. Look again in verse 17 at the end. Paul says, even if I'm poured out, I am glad and rejoice with you all. That seems counterintuitive to us, doesn't it? Pouring out and sacrifice, how could that lead to gladness and rejoicing? But it does. And so you and I are wrong. We are dead wrong. When we dread or we avoid pouring out, in sacrifice because we associate it with a sense of, of dread or sadness or loss. Even though pouring out our lives costs us, there is great joy in it. And if the testimony of Scripture is an accurate representation, and I believe it is, it seems then that the more you and I pour out our lives, the more we sacrifice ourselves for the sake of the gospel, for the advancement of the kingdom, the more we serve others for Christ's sake, the greater our joy will be. Do you believe that? 
Do you believe that? But of course, pouring out his life in doing so, Paul is only imitating Christ, right? Our, our ultimate model. Back in verse 7, it tells us that he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, a human being. He sacrificed the glory of heaven, please imagine, for the brokenness of earth. And he disrupted that eternal, unbroken relationship he had enjoyed with his father from all eternity past to be separated from his father here on earth. So in sacrificing, in pouring out his life, Paul is only imitating his Savior. And the same is true for us. When we pour out our lives, when we sacrifice our lives, as those who love Christ should do, we are only imitating Christ. We know our lives are limited. The hyphen on the tombstone tells us so, and so we've got to make decisions right now. How can we sacrifice? How can we pour out ourselves to serve others for the sake of Christ as individuals and together as a church? What resources can we give up? What time can we set aside? What first world problems can we just leave unsolved? You know what I mean by first world problems. Can we just leave some of those aside so that we have more resources, more time, more, more money to invest in the kingdom? Remember, you do not gain when you hoard and lose when you spend. It's the other way around. You gain when you give away. And you lose when you hoard. You gain joy, great joy, unspeakable joy when you pour out your life for Jesus who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Now let's move on to Timothy. That was one feature. Sacrifice. Let's add three more as we look at, at Timothy. You know Timothy. He is like a son to Paul in the Lord. Timothy's Paul's protege. Uh, Timothy served Paul, he learned from Paul, and he ministered with him. Now look in verses 19 and 20. Paul describes Timothy there. I hope in the Lord to send him to you soon, that you may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself. Because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. So the first feature of Timothy worth emulating in our lives is that Timothy was genuine. Timothy was authentic. Paul says it in verse 20. I have no one else who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Timothy is not a faker. He's genuine and he's real in all of his relationships with people. And that's what the generation of today, I guess the millennials, you would call them, that's what they long for, authenticity. And I don't think it's that other generations didn't want authenticity. I just think it's the generations who came before had more of a tolerance for a facade, more of an affinity for it. This generation says, uh-uh, no, no, don't want any more of that fake stuff. 
And that's good news. And you know why? Because God has created us to be genuine, authentic people, not fakers. God tells us in His Word, Psalm 51, that He desires truth in the inmost being. That's genuine authenticity in our hearts. Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine, real, authentic. 1 Peter 1, 22, have sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply and from the heart. Timothy is this kind of person, authentic and genuine. You and I need to ask God to help us be real, to help us be honest and authentic people. Look, we've got no reason not to be real with one another. We've got no reason to fear. We've got no reason to wear a false face or hide behind a facade. Not when we remember that we are loved by and accepted by our Father just as we are because of Jesus. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe the Lord loves you and accepts you as you are because of Jesus? Do you believe it? Then guess what? You can be real with other people. It's amazing how free you become when you're confident in your identity in Christ as a greatly loved son or daughter of the Father. It changes your interactions with other people. You're you're no longer worried about creating an identity for yourself. You're not worried about your place. You're not worried about your position. So you're free. You're free to be genuine and authentic and real and care for others deeply and from the heart. So authenticity, a feature we should all have. Second feature of Timothy's life. He's genuinely concerned for other people. Look in verse 20. It says just that. He is genuinely concerned for their welfare. And that means Timothy is not going to be put off by, Hello, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. All right. See you later. Uh Uh-uh. Timothy said, no. The word that Paul uses here for concern, it is a strong word. And it means to be anxious or worried or burdened in a serious way. And so we could read verse 20. It's Paul saying, I have no one else who will genuinely be anxious about your welfare, who will be burdened by your welfare, who will be genuinely, who will genuinely feel deeply your needs. And so just as authenticity must mark our lives, so must this kind of concern. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says, but God has combined the members of the body so that there should be no division in the body parts, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Concern for one another. It's the same word. And so again, we've got to ask ourselves, how genuinely concerned, burdened, anxious we are for the well-being of others. First, for those who are seated around us this morning. And then our families, neighbors, co-workers, both of their physical and spiritual needs. How willing are we to make their burdens our burden? To rejoice when they rejoice and to weep when they weep. 
Listen, you you and I are not going to become concerned on our own. I've tried it. It doesn't work. You know why? Because it's so easy for us to get annoyed with people. Does anyone in your life annoy you? Do I annoy you? Don't answer that question. People annoy us deeply. We get annoyed with them and the situations they get themselves into, and then they expect us to help them get out of it. That's how we feel. So the only way to change those feelings is to pray that the Lord would give us compassionate, genuine concern for others. Lord, give me concern for these people who are created in your image. That's the second feature of Timothy. Genuine concern. And that brings us to the third feature of Timothy's life. And he was single-minded. So we contrast Timothy with the other believers that Paul describes in verse 21. Those believers sought only their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. And so that's quite an indictment for the believers there in Rome who were around Paul as he was imprisoned. They put their own safety, their own comfort, their own pleasure, their own reputations before the things of Christ and before his kingdom and his honor. Timothy, on the other hand, is different. Timothy is single-minded. He seeks the things of Christ. And so he stands out, Timothy does, in a world of selfishness and self-seeking and getting ahead. Because Timothy's primary concern was for the gospel of Christ and the welfare of God's people. And so somehow Timothy seems to have avoided the trap of being double-minded, of trying to serve Christ and serve and exalt self at the very same time. But it wasn't true of most of the other believers and ministers in Rome. And too often it hasn't been true of of believers and ministers down through the centuries. So what are we going to say? What are you going to say? What what am I going to say? Is Timothy the rule or is Timothy the exception to the rule? Which is it? Is Timothy in his single-mindedness the rule for believers or is he the exception to the rule? But then forget how you would answer that question or how I would answer it. Let's put that question to the Lord. Lord, Is genuine interest and care for others to be the exception to the rule? Do you intend it to be a rare quality found only in a smattering of your people here and there? Or, Lord, is it to be the rule that all your people be genuinely and authentically and sincerely interested in the lives of others and single-minded in serving the body of Christ? What do you think God would say? The exception or the rule? Who votes for rule? Who votes? Don't raise your hand if you vote for exception. Or I'm going to start all over again. (laughs) Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 2. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So we've got to pray that the Lord will give us those kind of hearts that we would know Christ and nothing else. It doesn't mean we never 
speak of anything else or do anything else. It just means that, that Christ and who He is and our relationship with Him informs everything we do and where we go in the conversations we have because we are single-minded in our love for Christ and our desire to see His kingdom advanced. We are inexpressibly glad that Christ was single-minded in purpose. That as the time came for Him to be taken up to heaven, that He resolutely set out for Jerusalem. See, life situations and what Jesus experienced, experienced attempted to dissolve that resolve, His single-mindedness, to make it melt away, the agony, the suffering, work together to tempt him to say, I have had enough. But instead, Jesus was resolute. He would not be moved. Not my will, but thy will be done. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He was single-minded, resolute Savior. And so for him, and the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The same is true for us. For the joy set before us, for the eternity that awaits us, we can be single-minded in this world, in this life, focused on Christ, genuinely interest, interested in serving His people. Now let's move on. Guy number three, Epaphroditus, for one more feature. We read about Epaphroditus in verses 25 through 30. So here's the thing. It would be easy for us to believe that Paul is out of our reach. Because after all, Paul is an apostle, right? Capital A. Uh, he's beyond my reach. Timothy, on the other hand, might be a little more accessible to us. We can relate to him a little better, perhaps. And yet at the end, he was in full-time Christian service. And he was a protege of Paul. So maybe we dismiss him a little, but then comes along Epaphroditus. And from everything we can tell in Scripture, Epaphroditus is not an apostle. He is not a preacher. He's not an elder. He's not a deacon. Nothing leads us to believe that his ministry was anything dramatic or dynamic or unforgettable or earth-shaking. His situation is simply this. His home church took up money for Paul. His church needed someone to deliver the money they took up to Paul in prison in Rome. And so they looked around the church. Who shall we send? And everybody they looked at in the church, they said, hey, let's send Epaphroditus. And that's who went. So Epaphroditus is just a regular guy from the pew who showed himself to be faithful. Now look in verse 30. Paul writes of Epaphroditus, he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. And so here's a guy who was willing to take risks for the sake of the gospel. And that's the last feature. We need to be willing to take risks for the gospel. We don't know what happened to Epaphroditus. We don't know specifically what the risk was. But we know this to be true about the situation. Paul is a prisoner in Rome. And he's waiting to find out whether he's going to live or whether he's going to be executed. 
for his ministry. And so Epaphroditus had to be a man of great courage to be willing to associate with a man like Paul. Because he knew how the Roman government felt about Paul. Paul was going around the whole Roman world trying to convince people to, to follow Christ. To name Christ as their king and not Caesar. And so it's risky business being friends with Paul. We've seen it before. Peter, on the night Jesus was arrested, denied him three times. He didn't want to be associated with Jesus because he feared his own life would be in danger. We've seen enough or read enough about World War II to know the great risk that people took in their own lives if they befriended the Jews, those who were condemned by the German government. But Epaphroditus is willing to risk his life. And the word used here for risk is parabaluamai. And you're going to know I told you that in a minute. Parabaluamai. And that word means to roll the dice. It means to gamble, to play the gambler, to expose oneself to danger, and to risk everything, even one's own life. Now that's what that word means. And that's what Epaphroditus did. And he could gamble his life because he loved Christ, because he loved the gospel, because he loved Paul and was willing to risk his life for all. In the early days of the church in New Testament times, there was an association of Christian men and women who got together and they took the name the Parabolone. Now you know I told you that word, right? The Parabolone. That meant the gamblers. And they took their name from this Greek word that was used to describe Epaphroditus and guess who they took as the hero for their organization. Guess. Epaphroditus, the man who gambled with his life. And the aim and their mission, these people called the gamblers, was to visit the prisoners, to visit the sick, especially with those with infectious, dangerous, communicable diseases. It was their mission to unhesitatingly, unflinchingly, and boldly proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ in every environment without hesitation. And they called themselves the Parabolone, the gamblers. God used them. And He used their love. And He used their willingness to take risks, to reach people for Christ. Because God uses risk takers. God uses People who are confident that their lives are in God's hands. And so Epaphroditus is both a challenge and a rebuke to a soft, easygoing Christianity and ministry. His life says, I must be willing to take risks for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of others. Personal comfort and safety may not necessarily be the first two states or conditions to describe the Christian life in order to take that risk. You and I have to know that our lives are in our Father's hands. we got to be willing to roll the dice, toss them into the, our lap, 
and know that it's every outcome, whether it's to our liking or not, is from the Lord. And that's the risk that Jesus took on the cross. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus completely trusted in the fact that he could give up his life, he could place it in his Father's hands, and all would be well. Was it a risk? Possibly, for the human nature of Jesus. But it was a risk that he was willing to take because he knew his Father so well. And he knew so well the heart of his Father, and he knew so well the plan of his Father. And it was a plan for good. And it was a plan to prosper him. Are you willing to gamble with your life, to take risks, to forgo comfort because you are so certain that your life is in your Father's hands? Memorial Day. A great day for us to take stock of our lives as we remembered those who took their turn and now they've passed on. What are you and I going to do with our turn? We've seen this morning some things we can do as we looked at the life of these men. They sacrificed, they were authentic, they were concerned for others, they were single-minded, they were willing to take risks. And those are just five characteristics that, that marked the lives of these men. They rolled the dice, lived for Christ, joined the great cloud of witnesses. And it's a good thing, it's a good thing. If looking at their lives this morning causes you and me to look at our lives, to look and see if we see those features in our own reflections, one of them, two of them, four of them, five of them. But let me just tell you this. We doom ourselves to frustration. We doom ourselves to defeat if we focus on these men and not the Savior of these men. All that these men did resulted from the close, intimate relationship that they had with the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't try to have these features without Christ, without knowing Him deeply, without staying closely connected to Him, without talking to Him often and about everything. Only then can we be in our life who these men were in their lives. Only then can we have these features. We must have Christ first. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Whatever your amount of time on this earth is left, before you take your place, before I take my place with these great cloud of witnesses, We must live our lives for Christ and to imitate Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask now that we would be inspired, that we would be encouraged by the life of these men, by all the features that we see coming from their lives as they took their turn here on this earth. Lord, Let us be encouraged because we know the strength to be these kind of men did not come from themselves. It came from you. It came from the the power of your spirit from your presence with them. 
Lord, we need to be these kind of people. We need to put aside the thinking that being this way is only for a select few. It's for all of us, Lord, who follow you and who seek to be your disciple. So, Lord, first and foremost, keep our eyes focused on you. You are the example of all these things, of sacrifice, of genuine interest. Lord, that was you, of single-mindedness and purpose. That was you, Lord, of, of taking a, a great risk, risking your life, giving your life for us. So help us keep focused on you, Lord. Come to you often. Pray about all things. Ask you to make us these people. And we know, we believe, because you're faithful to answer prayer, that you will fill us with your Spirit. And we will be these kind of people as we make our way to home, as we finish out the dash. Uh, Lord, make us these kind of people for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.